Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Criminal Conduct. A new witness emerges who says that Jeremy was angry towards Michelle just days after her death. I asked him if he was all right, and he was just like, fuck that bitch, she deserved what she got. And Eli Washtock discovered what he believed was never before examined evidence. He says to me, this is a bombshell. When Cher Shore gets this, this is going to really get him upset. When we first heard that Eli Washtock claimed that he had a new piece of evidence on the Michelle O'Connell case, we had to figure out what he was talking about. It's been 10 years since Michelle's death. What new piece of evidence could Eli produce that hasn't already been discovered? Though we knew we couldn't track down everything Eli did pertaining to his investigation into Michelle's death, we wanted to find out what he meant by his comment to Patty about bombshell evidence. From what we could find, the most recent expert he had contacted was a blood spatter specialist named Anna Cox. I reached out to Anna, but she indicated she hadn't completed the work commissioned by Eli. How could there even be a bombshell if almost a year after his death, Anna Cox is still working on her analysis? I thought the same thing. Maybe Eli was overly excited by the prospect of what the blood spatter expert could find. Or maybe he knew there was something to find. John, it's been almost a year since we started reporting on this case. You've contacted Anna Cox, and she indicated that she was going to complete her report, which Eli had already paid for. Is there any news? Yes. Anna Cox recently completed her blood spatter analysis regarding the death of Michelle O'Connell. After I received her report, I spoke with her about her conclusions on what the blood at the scene can tell us. She has a precise method for working these cases. I view crime scene photographs first prior to reviewing any documentation. Anna Cox starts with the crime scene photos because... The photographs don't have their own subtle opinion. There are hundreds of pictures of the scene, but Anna Cox focused on a handful of photos taken before paramedics or police moved Michelle's body. So I viewed those photographs very closely for actually several days, over a period of several days, because they were the most accurate of the crime scene upon the arrival of the first responders. She reviewed crime scene photos, the autopsy report, along with police and paramedic statements. One of my responsibilities is to determine what is the most likely cause of those stains and patterns. Like any other scientific theory, which is you prove what most likely occurred by excluding things that absolutely could not happen. Because blood spatter experts can't control variables within a crime scene, their conclusions are less precise. They utilize phrases such as most likely or more consistent with, rather than more definitive statements. My biggest question is, did she see any blood on the gun? Anna Cox did identify blood on Jeremy's duty weapon. Well, that's interesting because agent Rusty Rogers sent the gun for forensic testing and it came back free of blood. Now, you and I have both looked at the photos of the gun and it appears like it has dried blood on it. I can't reconcile this discrepancy. I can't see how FDLE concluded there was no blood on the gun. According to Anna Cox, there was only blood in one place, on the tactical light on the side of the gun. So how does she explain how the blood got on the gun? I asked Anna Cox this same question. 
is there any kind of conclusions or opinions you can make about where the blood is on the gun and why there wouldn't be blood other places if, it, in fact, it did result from the gunshot itself? This is a tough question. I, I looked at the gun very closely in the photographs, and there does not appear to be any what I would consider to be reciprocating blood stains on the barrel of the gun, on the side of the slide, all the um, areas that you would expect from a gunshot wound for there to logically be blood, if that blood on the side of the tactical light did in fact come from the actual gunshot wound itself. Anna Cox is referring to what is also called backspatter. She says that if blood on the side of the gun was backspatter, then why are other parts of the gun free of blood? Well, if you are going to say that the blood on that side light came from that particular instance, one would have to surmise that there would also logically be blood on the side of the slide, the barrel as well. And there wasn't. Anna believes the blood on Jeremy Banks' service weapon was most likely a transfer stain, meaning someone or something that had blood on it came into contact with that area of the gun. So she doesn't believe it was backspatter from when the gun fired inside Michelle's mouth? No. When first responders arrived on scene, Jeremy's duty weapon was lying on the floor on Michelle's left side up against his police duty belt. The tactical light was against the belt. What are things that I can exclude? Well, at that point, based on what I have, I could exclude the duty belt as being the source of blood on the gun because I didn't see any blood on the duty belt. I can exclude the carpet around where the gun was documented as being the source because there's no blood on the carpet prior to Michelle being moved. So then I have to consider what are my other options. My other options are that that gun was in a different location and had a very minimal contact with the blood source, then came to rest at the duty belt, or the individual who moved the gun had blood on their person and transferred the blood onto the tactical light while moving it to the bathroom. Once again, I can't exclude either one from a scientific basis. This is an unknown. Anna Cox was not able to determine how blood got onto Jeremy's gun, but it didn't come from the gunshot. Let's talk about the yellow shirt that Jeremy wore on the night of Michelle's death. If you recall, FDLA agent Rusty Rogers told the St. John's Sheriff's Office that there were two blood spots on his shirt that represented high impact blood spatter. This claim ultimately resulted in Sheriff Shore placing Jeremy Banks on administrative leave until the conclusion of FDLE's investigation. In Anna Cox's report, she indicated that from the pictures, she could not determine whether or not it was blood spatter or a transfer stain. The impression that I got when I looked directly at the photographs of the shirt, I didn't see any additional stains other than the original two that had been marked. Two stains do not a pattern make for spatter. I didn't see any indication there was any other areas of blood on that shirt except for two single stains. So I would not call them spatter. I would not call that a spatter pattern. According to Anna, if there wasn't any blood spatter on the gun from the gunshot, she didn't expect to find any on Jeremy's shirt either, regardless of how Michelle was shot. John, in her report, did Anna Cox make any determination on Michelle's position when she was shot? 
Was she sitting, standing, kneeling? Yes. The crime scene reconstructionist hired by FDLE stated that Michelle was either kneeling or sitting when the fatal shot occurred. Anna Cox had a different theory. Based on the blood on her face, once she, once she was supine on the floor, she, did, she was not moved until EMS moved her for medical intervention. Supine, meaning she was laying face up, right? Yes. I don't feel she's in any position to where her head is above her torso for the fact that she would have bled immediately from her mouth because it's an intral oral gunshot. Head wounds bleed massively. Anna Cox stated that if Michelle O'Connell was upright, which could mean standing, sitting, kneeling, or squatting, she would have had blood on her chin, neck, and upper chest. There was no blood in these locations. As a result, she was either lying completely flat on the floor or very close to that position when the fatal shot occurred. The fact that Michelle was most likely lying on her back on the floor when the fatal gunshot occurred is consistent with both suicide and homicide. You identified a kind of a void in the blood on, I think it was Michelle's upper lip. Talk a little bit about that and like what you think you could extrapolate from that. So the first thing that I have to consider is, okay, I see a void in that area. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, the big deal for that would be the fact that it is a indentation. So it's almost like a little valley in your lip. It's almost like a little just. That divot is a teardrop dent in between your lips and your nose. So blood, because it is a liquid, will logically flow out of the nostril. And where is it going to go? to a path of least resistance. And we did have blood flow from both of her nostrils. So what that tells me is there has been some type of interruption to that blood pooling in that divot. Why wouldn't there be blood in the lower divot-like area if there was blood all around it? And what could have caused that? Michelle had blood flowing out of her nose and mouth everywhere except this tiny spot. Was there something in the way of that divot that did not allow blood to pull in that divot that that particular item received the blood and was then removed, therefore removing the actual blood and leaving just a minor transfer behind. This is another unknown in the case, as Anna Cox could not determine why there was no blood where there should be blood. This was not consistent with Jeremy's account of what he did after Michelle was shot. Did Eli Washtock have a theory as to what would stop the blood from flowing? From the creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With the FDLE case closed and the two state attorneys declining to prosecute, the O'Connell family was running out of hope. But there was one more option. Michelle's mother, Patty O'Connell, said that during the FDLE investigation, Rob Hardwick, a state attorney investigator and now candidate for sheriff in St. John's County, talked to Patty about exhuming Michelle's body. We know something terrible happened to Michelle. We want to exhume her. But that never happened. At this point, Michelle's case was all but over. The state investigators concluded suicide. The state attorneys did too. And Sheriff Shore is never going to arrest Jeremy Banks. But Patty O'Connell was not giving up. In January of 2016, the O'Connell family, in coordination with a medical examiner, Dr. William Anderson, had Michelle's body exhumed. Not everyone was pleased with this development. Here is Sheriff David Shore talking about this extreme step in my interview with him. We had a young girl being treated for a variety of serious issues, and she took her own life. And it's terrible. And, and I mean, they, they went and dug their, her body up with no court order. But the problem with that is, the problem with that is, any, you couldn't exhume the body after that because there was no official involvement. They hired some medical examiner, former medical examiner or something. They dig the body up so they've contaminated any potential chance of whatever they want to look for. Sheriff Shore was still fuming about this. He claimed the second autopsy was bogus because the O'Connell family, quote, hired a medical examiner. The truth is, Dr. Anderson conducted the second autopsy pro bono. And regarding legal claims about whether new evidence can hold up in court, well, that's not really up to him, is it? That's for the courts to decide. Three months after digging up Michelle's body, Dr. Anderson released his report regarding his examination of Michelle O'Connell. But what Dr. Anderson found was perhaps the most shocking piece of evidence since the investigation began. The pathologist discovered Michelle's lower jaw was fractured. Well, we found the fracture when we did the exhumation. That was somewhat surprising. Although going back and look at the x-rays, it was pretty clear that there was a fracture on the x-rays the anterior mandible. A fractured jaw? Why didn't anybody see this before? Multiple medical examiners reviewed this case, but none of them appeared to observe or note that Michelle's jaw was broken. I asked Dr. Anderson if the fractured jaw could be caused by the gun blast. He says, yes. Now, the problem, of course, is with an uh, inner gunshot wound, you can get, you know, particularly the shotgun, and you get the whole lower portion of the face destroyed thanks to the, the blast effect. But that didn't happen in Michelle's case. Something else no other medical examiner seemed to find noteworthy was the positioning of Michelle's tongue at the time of the gunshot. And if you look at the pictures of the tongue, it has to be basically in a flexed position to go the tip down and the tongue retracted back. It's very unusual because if you do that with your your finger and your tongue and you push it back a bit, the person starts to hurt and then you'll actually gag. And I questioned once, well, if somebody's making a suicide, why would you go to the trouble of choking yourself while you're doing it? I mean, all you got to do is lay the gun in the back of your mouth and shoot it. 
So basically, it's just like you said, the tongue was pushing on the barrel of the gun, and, and then the gun was pushing well, back. Yeah, the barrel of the gun was pushing back, or it wasn't, the tongue wasn't pushing at all, and the barrel of the gun was just pushing the tongue back. So it's in a situation where the victim would be unconscious. First of all, it's painful to push the tongue back, and then it start to choke. Why would you do all that before you shoot the weapon? Just put it on top of the tongue and shoot it. There were too many inconsistencies for Dr. Anderson to tie the broken jaw to the blast of the gun. How does the mandibular fracture occur from a gunshot wound to the back of the mouth when there's no injury in any of the soft tissues or little fragile bones between there and the mandible? Which a mandible is very hard to fracture. It's a big, strong bone in strongest bone in the skull, one of the strongest in the body, in an adult female. Now, how does that happen? Well, if there's sufficient blast effect in the, it should, you know, the, the bones of the frontal bones of the sinuses and the upper maxilla and so forth, they're very delicate bones. Uh, you would expect to see if there was enough blast effect there to fracture those bones, uh, that that would, you know, that would be a critical factor. And then we get to the mandible fracture. Well, those delicate little bones in the upper maxilla in the nasal area and so forth, they're not fractured at all. Basically, Dr. Anderson is asking, why did the jaw break, yet no other bones or teeth were damaged anywhere around it? All the, the, the soft tissues of the base of the tongue, the floor of the mouth, the teeth, none of those are damaged. Well, if there's enough force from the gunshot wound to break the mandible, you sure as hell are going to get tearing of the tissues, you know, disruption of the teeth. Uh, so you're going to get enough force to tear those well before you get enough to fracture the mandible. So we've got a fractured mandible, but those other areas are not injured. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So if the blast didn't cause the mandible to break, what did? So the only other explanation is that was a separate force that caused the mandibular fracture. I'm looking at the crime scene photo of Michelle right now, and I'm looking at her jaw, and and her jaw, I mean, is covered with blood, so I can't really tell, but it doesn't look like it was struck, right? Like it doesn't look bruised. Well, you got to remember, it takes, a, it takes a few minutes for even a bruise to develop. And if she's hit immediately when we did the exclamation, we saw some reddish coloration around that area of which would mean there was some blood there. But if she is basically shot within seconds, there's not going to be a lot of time for any bruising to develop necessarily. When you get hemorrhage in the bruise, you have to have blood pressure, pressed, pushing the blood into the soft tissues that have been injured, right? So you got to have blood pressure. Mm-hmm. If the blood pressure suddenly stops, like the brain is destroyed, brain stem is destroyed, and the heart stops, you're not going to have time to just basically see any bruising developing. Michelle wasn't dead when the paramedics arrived, so she had a weak pulse, but perhaps it was too weak to cause the soft tissue to bruise. And can I ask you, is it possible that maybe she fractured this, her mandible, like earlier on in her life? Oh, no, it's a fresh fracture. There's no healing. You can look at it. It came apart at the, when we did the autopsy, the mandible, the second autopsy, the mandible was in two pieces. You no doubt about it being a fresh fracture. Dr. Anderson says that the fracture was clearly visible in the x-rays during the original autopsy. In fact, Dr. Bullock, one of the original medical examiners, was on TV going over the x-ray with reporters. Then I watched an interview with Dr. Bullock, and he's up there pointing at the bullet, and you can see the fraction. You can see the fraction on the x-ray during the TV interview. I'm thinking, 
What are you guys thinking? I'm looking at the X-ray right now, but I'm not. I'm not sure what I'm looking no. at. Anyway, it's a little irregular line, just slightly to almost in the midline, just slightly, I think, to her left of the midline, and it's sort of a black line. Oh it's yeah, not the white. The white. Oh, I see it. It's like right at the end of her chin, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh wow, a little irregular line. That's the fracture. Well, that that's pretty. That's actually pretty defined. That's. Oh yeah, it's fresh fracture. I mean, f according to this x-ray, it's not even attached. It looks no, like. it's totally, it's a total fracture. Wow. Which means it's a very hard blow. I mean, boxers don't usually get fractures like this. Wow. It was probably a fist or a, a gun butt or something heavy that caused the fracture. Certainly enough to make her unconscious. I just find it hard to believe that two pathologists look at the same evidence and come to such radically different conclusions. Why did Dr. Hoban, the first medical examiner, miss the broken jaw and the retracted tongue position? Law enforcement's opinions and theories can have a significant impact on a medical examiner's determination regarding manner of death. Dr. Anderson spoke to this point. How did so many medical examiners see this and it took years later to discover the fractured jaw and to kind of piece the story together the way you kind of saw things? That I don't know. All I can tell you is many times medical examiners depend upon what law enforcement tells them. And in this case, law enforcement is a suspect. <laughs> so That was one of my questions to you is that how much of the relationship with law enforcement do medical examiners take into account when, when they determine their final ruling, I guess? You know, the cops that come into the room, tell the medical examiner what happened, sort of stand over them while he quotes find things that will agree with their opinions. Because many people, you know, law enforcement tells them something, they're not going to basically turn around and say, listen, Sergeant, you're full of shit. This is not what happens. So the majority of your people choosing the medical examiner are from law enforcement. Of course, that's exactly the opposite of the situation you want with an independent medical examiner. You do not want your science to be influenced up front. One of the things that, like, really puzzles me about this case is that this is an intraoral gunshot wound and like how common is that in a homicide case well if you got an unconscious victim and want to make it look like a suicide uh, it's a very good way to do it once they're unconscious the fact that the gunshot was interoral is in my opinion the strongest evidence of suicide in this case yet michelle o'connell had a broken jaw and if that occurred just prior to the gunshot it could have easily rendered her unconscious the fractured jaw is a huge deal, but Dr. Anderson's finding didn't seem to sway Sheriff Shore. We actually interviewed Sheriff Shore of St. Johns County, and he wrote an extensive report on this, and he adamantly defends Jeremy Banks and says, listen, we've had three medical examiners look at this, and all three of them have concluded suicide. So you're really the outlier here. What do you have to say about that? Well, first of all, I don't think any of them who reviewed the case initially found the fracture. We were the first ones that did find the fracture. You know, that puts, you have a second injury, which totally changes the picture. Shore's dismissal of this new evidence rubbed Dr. Anderson the wrong way. I was medical examiner in Orange County for, what, 12 years, and we probably prosecuted successfully in the neighborhood of two or 300 homicides. And I've never had, I've never had, well, these people would say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. 
uh, my my reaction that is, well, you better call the state attorney down there because you got two or three hundred people in jail that shouldn't be there. So this one time, if it happens to disagree with you, you suddenly don't you don't agree. But the facts are the facts. The other criticism that Sheriff Shore says exhuming her body and doing all this it jeopardizes any future investigation or prosecution. Well, he didn't ask me. Yeah. I was medically examining else <laughs> for over 10 years in Orange County. He prosecuted everybody. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't called me and asked me. Uh, we were very successful in prosecuting people because we did the forensic evidence and we didn't come up with a bunch of BS. Yeah. But uh, I, I believe he wants to take it to the jury. I believe we've got enough evidence to convict somebody. Yeah. So I haven't called me. Javier asked Dr. Anderson about his conclusion regarding manner of death. You know, it's still not consistent with suicide at all. The most consistent with a homicide. There's no reason to kill herself. She's ready to leave. Packing up, packing up to run away from your boyfriend is usually not the time when you commit suicide. So in your in your book, there is no room for suicide here. In my opinion, no. Too many unexplained things. Too many things are not consistent with suicide. People commit suicide, put the gun in their mouth and fire it. They don't lay down, force the gun back against their tongue after turning it upside down so they pull it with the trigger, and then have no explanation for why there's a fracture. Dr. Anderson says if Jeremy didn't shoot Michelle, someone else did. I would like to see it prosecuted. Somebody, could, if it wasn't Banks, somebody shot her. So if it was a stranger hiding in the hallway and Jeremy ought to be interested in finding the guy. There was little official reaction to the new findings. Two complaints were submitted against the initial medical examiner, Dr. Frederick Hoban, and Dr. Predrag Bullock, the medical examiner who theorized that Michelle shot herself with the gun upside down. The complaints concerned the medical examiner's office allowing an unauthorized individual to view Michelle O'Connell's autopsy photos without the immediate family's permission, improperly storing official medical records, and failing to properly review Michelle O'Connell's death. The governing body created a probable cause panel to review and investigate the allegations. Dr. Holbin, who conducted the initial autopsy, never once identified Michelle's broken jaw in his autopsy report. One panel member pointed out that by excluding the injury in the autopsy report, it was highly unlikely that law enforcement or prosecutors would ever become aware of this injury. Regardless, the review panel found that since Dr. Holbin took the x-rays of Michelle's jaw, he properly documented the injury. In February of 2017, the panel made several determinations. The absence of noting the jaw injury in the autopsy report only constituted poor record keeping, but it was not negligent. Based on these findings, the panel placed Dr. Hoban on suspension for six months. For Dr. Bullock's supervisory role with regard to the identified issues, the panel only issued him a written reprimand. Next time on Criminal Conduct. We visited Eli Washtock's condo near St. Augustine, Florida to figure out how the killer was able to get into his condo. We spoke with one of the guards. Hey, we're doing a uh, podcast. Were you working when, that, when his uh, murder occurred? There's only two possibilities. The killer either got through security that night or was already inside. Also, 
John travels to Wisconsin to learn more about Eli Washtock's past. My brother, he'll puff up his chest and do what's right. I mean, he defends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, he would defend anybody close to him. Only two more episodes left. That's next week on Criminal Conduct. A special thanks to our executive producer, Advertise Cast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. Each episode, John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. Mens rea is the legal principle of criminal intent. It means literally the guilty mind. Join me, Sinead, every fortnight to discuss Ireland and the UK's most heinous crimes and the court cases that followed. Do you want to know more about a kink killing in Dublin in 2012? Or serial killers in Scotland? Whatever your guilty pleasure, you'll find it and all the details with me. Find Mens Rea wherever you get your podcasts. Creative Pack.